And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everyone to another October and the beginning of another season for us. It's hard to believe this will be our sixth season. That's a lot of wasted time. Uncle Frank, what could possibly keep us going? Force of habit, I guess. Plus an obsession with the gamey, of course. But regardless, we have a great show for everyone tonight. Like what? Well, since Halloween is coming, we have a lot of weird sounds and songs for the season. I hear we also have our top ten haunted places in the world, some of which you can visit We'll tell you how. I heard that rumor, too. We also have another pretentious reading from a scholastic book, and we revisit Christopher Walking reciting the raven. Speaking of Poe, Basil Rathborn shares with us The City by the Sea, and Vincent Price reads The Phantom Merry-Go-Round. And we have some other stuff, of course. So come with us for a macabre Halloween romp. Yes, let's get started. Inside this strange, forbidding plantation, on the edge of the death-laden bios, there is a horror beyond belief. A scientist turns his cobalt rays on the revolting, scaly monarchs of the swamps to transform men into hideous, living gargoyles, whose faces must be forever hidden from human sight. He didn't have to hit him. Quicker, simplest way, Doctor. But these are people. You don't handle them like animals. Beverly Garland as the unwelcome visitor, haunted by the fear that the man she loves has become one of them. What are you doing? I'm not leaving here, Mrs. Hawthorne, until I get the answers to the questions that brought me here. What have you done with my husband? Lon Chaney as the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! Suspense that will clutch you like quicksand. <coughs> pulling you down into bottomless depths of suffocating horror.
Who's there? Who's there? Up there on the stairs. Beware, beware. I hear somebody coming up on his toes. Oh, look there. He goes. I miss the ghost. He's going to town. He takes his cane, his gloves, and his hat. And like a cat, he hurries down the alley. The moon is bright. And this is the night when Mr. Ghost is going to town. To do a little stepping, he'll shake his bone to hot saxophone. Cause Mr. the Ghost is going to town. Among the pirate islands at the outer edge of Barataria Bay, the westernmost is Ile Dernier, now generally known as Last Island. For a little while it was the capital of the illegitimate empire of Jean Lafitte, the famous buccaneer who later moved to Grand Terre and became a picturesque hero at the Battle of New Orleans. Not long after the pirates had scattered, Last Island became a summer resort. Some of the most distinguished of New Orleans Creole families built luxurious cottages there. An enterprising merchant erected an elaborate hotel called the Trade Wind, which was decorated by many towers and bordered by pillared galleries. A whole wing of this long and spacious building was devoted to a ballroom where an orchestra played nightly, and all the families from the cottages joined the hotel guests to dance the hours of darkness away. 
The season was at its height at the beginning of August in 1856. The summer residents congratulated each other that their island was cool, while the heat of New Orleans was almost intolerable. A strong north wind was blowing and high waves raced in from the Gulf of Mexico to break in thundering surf upon the sand. Each day was bright and clear. On the ninth of the month came the first ominous evidences of possible disaster. Great dark clouds towered on the horizon, and the wind brought with it a roaring sound. Darkness came early that afternoon, and the sound increased. The islanders gathered at the ballroom, glad to divert themselves by dancing and forgetting the fears that stirred in their minds. Nervously, the ladies in their formal gowns looked out of the windows at the advancing waves, but soon the music and the gay rhythms of the dance captured their complete attention. When the gaiety was at its height, came a piercing scream. A girl had seen water spurt under the door of the ballroom and darken the shining floor. As some of the gentlemen raced toward the door, it burst from its hinges, and a resistless wave swept through the room. The struggling dancers heard a terrific crash, and the roof of the ballroom had blown away. Wave after wave followed, and the helpless humans, screaming and panic-stricken, were scattered by the seething waters. Those who fought their way out of the hotel saw whole cottages swept away from their foundations and bobbing crazily about. A small steamboat, the Star, had been snatched from her moorings and was blown up upon the island. It filled with water and sank on the site of a billiard parlor which had disappeared. A few of the victims of the storm fought their way to her hull and clung there throughout the night. Not far from the hotel stood a children's whirligig or merry-go-round. A group of men and women had fought their way to it, and they clung to the wooden rail above their heads. The wind increased its force and set the rail to circling. The terrified passengers kept desperate hold, their bodies hanging grotesquely as the rail went round. When the waters receded next morning, about two-thirds of the people on the island had lost their lives. Many were never found. But here and there on the wet sands lay corpses in odd, stiff attitudes. Almost a century has passed since this great tragedy. But the fishermen of Barataria Bay say that even today, when chugging past Last Island in their little boats, Sometimes on blowy nights, they see on its shores a vast hotel, its windows gleaming with light, and they hear dance music above the whistle of the wind. Sometimes, too, a boat crew reports that they have beheld by the light of the windows dark shadows moving slowly in circular parade, like human bodies riding a gruesome merry-go-round.
What's Halloween without ghost stories? I guess what's any night without ghost stories? <laughs> Actually, everyone has one. If not your own experience, then there's the experience of a friend or relatives or just an acquaintance, their experience. In fact, the other day, I just heard one from mom, which I don't know if you know this, Jimmy Sweets, but she was talking about the people, one of her renters, the one on Laurel, and they asked her, did, did a... Um, an old person used to oh, live here yeah. and she goes no you know I never rented well she goes the neighbors they said an old person used to be there and why I'm saying this is that my daughter keeps seeing this woman this elderly woman just like walking in and going through drawers or just and comes tells her and you know she, they think it's a ghost and then Later, my mom realized, oh my gosh, my, my husband's mother lived there. The only person is our grandma. <laughs> so that's a creepy story, but it also makes me a little sad. I know. <laughs> I, or is it just, like some say, it's just the, the uh, like a photo. It just captured the moment and is repeated over and over. It's not really a, the soul of the person. But anyway, that's a, an experience, I don't know, three degrees of separation or whatever. But tonight, we're not just talking about like a single experience. We're talking about places with multiple experiences, you know, haunted places, and our favorite haunted places, actually. At least some of them. So tonight, we bring you five haunted places and how you can visit them. And I got the first one. And my first haunted place from the whole world is actually only five miles from my house. And I visited well, more than a dozen times at least, you know, through the years, and without even knowing about the specter that haunts it. And what's this bastion of horror? Well, it's the Oxnard Walmart. <laughs> it's, it's, this is one of my favorites because it's very convenient to visit. Uh, you know, you simply have to brave the crowds in the parking lot and in the store, and you don't need a reservation. You don't have to pay a fee. Um, so it's in my hometown too, so I have sort of a sentimental attachment. And the nature of the hunting has gone from nearly quaint to kind of bone chilling. So that's another reason that I think this is pretty darn cool. Uh, the store itself, it hasn't been around for all that long. I think it was built in 1995. Before that, like you know, most of Oxnard in the old days, it was just fields. And when they first built the Walmart, there were no signs of paranormal activity. Everyone, both the employees and the customers, they just basically moved through the day, either buying or selling. But then there began to be stories, uh, mostly from employees, but um, some from customers. People began to hear giggling, you know, in the toy aisle, and there weren't any kids around, and there weren't like in the next aisle over either. And then, um, some employees would come around the aisle corner and they would see a ball bouncing, you know, and they would bounce to a stop, but it was as if a kid had just thrown it or somebody or fell off a shelf and there was nobody around. And then the customer employees both, they started noticing a little girl that was by the toy aisle. And a girl about nine, she had pigtails and she always wore this blue dress. Every time someone, would, they would comment it because they would wonder, you know, what's her parent doing? And the girl seemed sweet. Sometimes she would smile or wave, but she never spoke. 
she would just look at the toys and sometimes she'd play with some and none of the employees tried to stop her or the customers they just like I said wondered where her parents were then there was an employee that began to swear that they had seen the little girl like vanish before their eyes like in front of them and most of the people she told thought she was seeing things but then a few other people came up to the employee and told them you know we'd seen something like it and one of them said I saw the little girl, but I didn't know whether she was real or I was seeing things because it didn't seem substantial. And these people kept it to themselves. It wasn't, there was, most people in the store had never heard about this. And uh, things went on. Uh, the, the girl was still seen, but not very frequently, and maybe even less than before. But now there came a change. And uh, the girl seemed, you know, more sinister in some ways. Her eyes now, when you saw her, were completely white, no irises or pupils, and her body was covered from blood from her mouth down. Um, so it, she still would smile, <laughs> but now it was this ghoulish sort of smile. And um, and usually now, when you saw her, she'd quickly vanish. Uh, so you couldn't couldn't uh, not see that she was not a, a regular human girl. So anyway, that's what's been going on lately. <laughs> Rumors about that, and it just kind of spread out now to the general population. But anyway, there's our number one of haunted places, and it's in my very own town of Oxnard in the Walmart. James, what's our next one? Well, Frank, I have Loftus Hall. And Loftus Hall is in Hook Peninsula in the county Wexford in Ireland. All the Irish ghost stories are and, the best stories. <laughs> yeah, right. It's for some reason those Irish they they can well, tell a good old history. Can tell a good yes. ghost story. Loftus Hall is widely known as the most haunted house in Ireland, and it's been featured on on both the Irish TV show Ghost Hunters and the American TV show Ghost Adventures. So that's pretty fun, and it's funny because. It really has one main ghost story, and, and you'd think that that seems awfully ambitious for a house with only one ghost story yeah, to its same. name <laughs> to call itself the most haunted house in Ireland. But Loftus Hall's ghost story involves the devil himself. <laughs> nice. So, how's that for a celebrity? Teaser? Always has. <laughs> yeah, right. So it started off as Raymond Hall, Redmond Hall, sorry, in 1170, which you know, Very crazy, ancient. yeah, 900 years ago almost. And uh, Raymond LeGrosse landed at what is now known as the Bagabun. And he built a, a residence and it was a castle. It stayed that way until about 1634. And that is when Nicholas Loftus acquired the land and moved his first wife and his daughter Anne into the residence. At that point, his first wife dies and he gets remarried. And so the key players in this tale are Baron Loftus, the Lady Anne Loftus, his daughter, and and uh, and the devil and the devil. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. In 1666, Frank Baron Loftus was in the residence at Loftus Hall with his second wife, the Lady Jane, not the uh, not the GI Joe character. Okay. But, the, uh, but the Lady Jane and his daughter Anne. 
from his first from his first marriage. One night there was a terrible storm, the storm that forced a ship with only one passenger to seek refuge at Slade Harbor. He rode through the storm to find a place to stay and saw light coming from the window at Loftus Hall. The family heard a knock at the door and invited the tall, handsome stranger dressed in black into the hall. They offered him a place to stay and the young man became quick friends with the 21-year-old Anne. They began to spend a, lo- spend a lot of time together. That's trouble, right? Yeah, there. right? <laughs> Already, that's a nightmare. <laughs> I got two done. Uh, one night, the family and handsome stranger were playing cards, and Anne dropped one of her cards. And as she bent down to pick one of the cards up, she looked under the table casually and saw that the handsome man had a cloved hoof for a, for a foot. <laughs> That's never a good sign. No. <laughs> never a good sign. It's also that you should never look underneath things. <laughs> right. You will always find something you don't like. <laughs> she let out a blood-curdling scream. And it was at that moment that the young man disappeared through the ceiling to the sound of thunder, a flash of lightning, disappearing without a trace, with the smell of brimstone lingering in the air, leaving a large hole in the roof that to this day can never be repaired. Oh, they still have a hole in there? Well, they no matter how many times they tried to repair it, still water leaks through it. And, and <laughs> well, it always like ends up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always ends up with the whole back where it was. Wow. Anne became mentally ill and deranged after this, and she spent the Who rest... Who did? The one tried to repair the roof? Or no, the no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> that, wow. That was terrible. That was Fertilla the carpenter, but uh, <laughs> but Anne was the young lady that, that, that saw the cloven hoof, and she uh, unfortunately became mentally ill and deranged, and she spent the rest of her days in what is known as the tapestry room, right? They're great, what would be the living room with the big tapestries on the wall. Yeah. Um, which had been her favorite room. Her tiny body became so twisted and huddled into a strange position, and she became stuck in that position. Uh, and then misery. when she died, she was carried out of the house and buried in a specially made coffin to that would fit, to, that would fit her contorted body. <laughs> The house to this day is haunted by the ghost of Anne. There's been hundreds of sightings of her in the tapestry room. Mostly it's the girl wailing in her contorted position. (laughs) And and talking nonsense, spewing nonsense, not just about a cloven hoof demon, but about, you know, crazy whatever it is that she'd be talking about. Random stuff. It makes it more eerie because it's the mundane that that has gotten her her contorted. I hope that's just an image and not her wandering mad for all eternity. Aye, aye, aye. These things are depressing (laughs) as well as horrifying. They are. Wait till the next one. (laughs) Uh, Well, I got Cockatoo Island, which uh, I don't think the hauntings are so horrible, but the things that happened there to the living were horrible. This is an island that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Wow. And it's located in the Sydney Harbor of Australia. When you look at Wikipedia, they just talk about all the positive things. Because it has a bunch of shipyards. It was one of the first prison sites. Um, But there was a lot of messed up stuff there. And apparently, this messed up stuff has left ghosts. And some of the things seen are dark shapes. There's other figures that have interacted with living people. Some seem to be just seen loops that you see played over and over again, and others attack. So first, there was a colonial prison there. 
and uh, quite a few of the inmates died and I don't mean of old age there was abuse and some old age others died by uh, you know climbing the wall and trying to get out and at least one guard was murdered by a prisoner but I'm sure there were many more just by any other prison today all these uh, spirits seem to linger uh, in the old superintendent house for example one of the modern employees that worked there because it, it's mainly a site you take a ferry over there and you go to see the old the history the buildings the history of that uh, but you can also take the night ghost tours as well so one of the modern employees at the museum basically of the of the uh, prison was in the superintendent's house and he got shoved out of the room <laughs> violently but there was nobody there and other people have been in the building and they've smelled um, cigar tobacco smoke and they've encountered the sounds of footsteps on the empty staircase this same prison though uh, I think worse because there was a lot of some of the stuff's normal prison and but other stuff were um, the small places they kept prisoners in to punish them well in 1871, it became a, ghoul, a girl reformatory, and they kept the same rooms as punishment for these girls. Oh. And there was a lot of cruelty in, uh, of, you know, pulling, of dragging people by their hair. You know, you've seen people with uh, things about different schools and stuff, how they abuse normal students. Well, these were troublemakers, so you know that they would be getting mal maltreated. And there was so much cruelty that it was shut down in 1880. So today, girls have—I um, mean, visitors—have seen girls in white dresses wandering in and around the grounds, and they hear the sounds of sobbing from some of the dormitories, um, and they hear voices in some of the different rooms. And the shipyards—they had their own stories, but they were like of gruesome industrial accidents and at least one mysterious disappearance of a man. I don't know if he's murdered or just took off um, and in the ruins today there are similar encounters to the ones that are the prison and the school so that's Cockatoo Island uh, like I said you can visit it and uh, and take the ghost tours or just go during the day if you want to and um, there we go that's that's I think it's the only ghost site that I know that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and James, what's your next one? We actually tried trying to one up you. It's another island. Ah. <laughs> A I, lot of I, islands in our thing. Provegula. Proveglia, I believe is how you pronounce it. And it's off the coast of Venice. Oh. Of all places. Italy, of course. They've had a, a fort on it for for hundreds of years. And it got its start. As a, as a military base, and then in 1793 to 1814, it actually was a site in which they put all the plague victims oh. so that they would die and they would, would uh, keep them away from, everybody, them away else. from everybody else. So if you got the plague, you got sent to this oh island. So you can imagine, like the, imagine the amount of misery. And there actually is said to be 100,000 victims on that from the plague from the plague everything i guess from the plague from yeah from 1793 to 1814 a hundred thousand victims died there and they didn't bring the bodies back you can see pits that they've they've uncovered with just hundreds of you know thousands of bones and it's said that 
that if you took a step in the mud that at least 50% of the soil would be human ash. Oh. Yeah, or bone. Yeah, that may be a slight exaggeration, but I mean, it is a That's small crazy. island and they had 100,000 people buried there, basically. So what do you do with an island, uh, you know, that has 100,000 dead people on it? Uh, first thing they did actually was, believe it or not, they transformed it into a quarantine station for people that, were tra that would trade. And they would take, uh, if you were going to trade with Venice, you'd stay there for 40 days. And they make sure you were all right. <laughs> and then, well, then you can move on. And then you could go and, and go on to the mainland. That was after, that was after, after the plague. They don't put you with the plague. And uh, so and it, was, it was fine. You could have mail and all kinds of stuff. It was, you know, you'd, you'd visit and whatever. Nothing horrible. But after that, <laughs> in, in, uh, in I believe 1923, they turned it into a mental institution oh, my God. <laughs> in the 20s. And uh, one of the most chilling stories of the whole place, which is during the time of the mental hospital, uh, the privacy that the island afforded the doctors uh, and scientists uh, gave them the chilling ability to do whatever they wanted to do, right? And there's tell of a doctor that performed the most heinous of acts uh, he believed, and a lot of people did, I guess, but he, he believed in lobotomies. <laughs> and, of course, they did it with no anesthesia, just a chisel and a, uh -huh. and a hammer. And, uh, and for some reason, he would take his, his most heinous uh, scientific experiments and bring them up to the bell tower. And have them up there? And he would, he would do his, his work up there. Screams would be heard throughout the island. Karma... It's a pain in the butt sometimes, and uh, he met his doom in that very tower. That very tower, or should I say, at the bottom of the <laughs> tower? <laughs> Did he get shoved out by a crazy person? So we don't know. It could have been. Or some suicide. say. Some say he committed suicide. Some say that he was pushed out by one of his victims, and still others say that a ghost picked him up. <laughs> but I do know that a nurse saw him hit the ground, and he was still alive. And that she swore to her dying day that a mist, what she could only, some kind of fog or, or ghostly presence came down and he, he choked to death or smothered to death in this fog. <laughs> and then gasping, he couldn't breathe. And it was because of this, some say the victims of yeah. his, of his uh, atrocities oh, yeah, yeah. came down and, uh, even and, the said, score. and even the score. And that's one of the things that they do say, too, that every night you can hear that bell ring. Oh, nice. So even after Prevago was shut down, uh, the, the mental institution, I think in 68, uh, they housed homeless old people there. <laughs> they just, one bad decision after the next as far as paranormal or, or good if you want to have have a place where you're going to have lots of, you're gonna get lots of ghosts. Of course, people went there and, and it was kind of almost like the plague or whatever. You know, people are sick and mentally ill and, and they too died in droves. Uh, and I, I couldn't uncover any anything bad happening to them, but you know, they were just people, old people were old and, and uh, so that adds to 
the list of the body count. <laughs> that this has to be the most haunted place. <laughs> this is what, what they some, claim. What are some of the? I mean, of course, nobody goes there hardly, but. Are all of them just like poltergeist experiences, or they see things? That's people? what they say. Of course, all you know, of course, a bunch of shadows and a bunch of things just moving, and they are like poltergeists, or like people walking up to the bell tower, people going down the corridors, people outside, and a lot of screams, a lot of screams. Oh, <laughs> so this is considered one of the most illegal places to visit in the world. What? <laughs> and haunted. So <laughs> they got two things on their Guinness Book of. Uh, <laughs> World records. Uh, of course, that doesn't stop the occasional thrill seeker from taking a boat over to the island. The people who have made it there and came back have crazy stories. And this is kind of one of the only places where I've actually heard of they ghosts scraping them, pushing them against walls, actual physical contact with ghosts. And the whole time, everybody always says that they feel like they're being watched. Now, that could just be, yes. <laughs> you know, I could put that in my mind. There's 100,000 dead bodies on but that also day. it's illegal that's supposed to be there yeah right so but there's nobody out there and there's a lot of what would be considered contact with with the paranormal and that's i think one of the big things they actually have put it up for auction several times uh and and an italian uh entrepreneur uh put in put in a bid and was going to make it into a a, a lavish hotel <laughs> but in turn, it, it, they they said it wasn't enough money. He, his uh, low, the low bid was, I mean, the high bid was still low, too low, uh, for the Italian government. So they're they're holding out to to make a hotel there one day. So hopefully, all you ghost hunters, <laughs> yes, you can go and and see Probiglia off the coast of Venice. Yeah, finally, where the where the where a hundred thousand people died from and the plague, the, and the soil is made of dead bodies. And the and the screams of mentally ill can be heard nightly. Yeah, nightly. I don't and, think and, and as the bell chimes. Man alive, that's grim. Well, we're going to end on a note um, a little bit lighter. And this one is actually not just one haunted place, but a bunch of them uh, with the same theme, sort of, and namely the hauntings of bathrooms. <laughs> yes, <laughs> bathroom ghosts are not just for Harry Potter movies. There's a long and respectable tradition of them. And my first is the Ladies' Loo at the Maulani Golf Course on the Big Island of Hawaii. And that's where there was a woman who reported terrifying screaming. Uh, and uh, she lost it, ran out to get her husband to bring him back. But of course, when he got there, to her chagrin, there was no more screaming. See, quote, there were four stalls... And only the second one was closed. I quickly glanced underneath that second stall to check if it was occupied. It was empty. All of a sudden, I started hearing this wailing sound that progressively grew louder. And as I got closer to the third stall, which I, have which I decided to use before the screaming, I guess, the sound got so loud and terrifying that I couldn't do it and decided to bolt out of there. As soon as I turned around and I started to run, I heard something coming after me. I fumbled with the door a bit because I forgot to pull out the, the uh, <laughs> instead of push. Once I finally turned out around the corner, the footsteps behind me stopped. And then I looked and there was nobody there. That is one horrifying... I think I would need a bathroom after that. <laughs> I would need to be cleaned up. Yeah. But uh, and that's one example. Another one... And, it, of course, it's in a woman's restroom. It's weird. There, there's a predominance of women's restrooms that are haunted. 
This one is on the 86th floor of the Empire State Building, and it's supposed to be haunted by a female suicide who jumped out of the 86th floor. This one is more like a presence and some sounds, but nothing as uh, crazy as that poor woman at the, at the uh, golf course. Then there's the Hotel Galvez at Galveston, Texas. And it has a mother's, uh, another lady's restroom where this time the ghosts, there's just toilets get flushed without anybody being there. The stall doors start shaking when you're sitting in there. Oh, man. And the sinks turn on, and sometimes they can see a shadow being casted where there's nobody there. Uh, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard have both been seen in a restroom in the Oatman Hotel in Arizona, and that's where they honeymooned. I was at the hotel, and I used their bathroom, so but I didn't experience anything, sadly. Uh, a more sinister story comes from the McDonald's bathroom in Cuero, Texas. And that used to be a place, there was a gas station, and they, they had... Um, you know, built over with McDonald's. Uh, but that place, the mechanic there is supposed to have killed his child, and then he got crushed later on by the lift. <laughs> you know, uh, so I don't want to mess with that ghost. And then there's the bathroom at the Chelsea Star Hotel in New York, and it's supposedly haunted by Nancy Spungen, and that's a girlfriend of Sid Vicious who died in the bathroom from uh, stab wounds possibly infected by uh, Sid Vicious himself, but he died of an overdose before the trial. So so you can see that not even when you're doing your business <laughs> are you safe from the paranormal. And I guess that's it for our haunted places tonight, mostly because we ran out of time again. <laughs> but there are plenty of other ones that we're in love with, and there's some that we've even visited. But uh, that's a story for another night. Warning, audiences everywhere are growing concerned about distasteful and gruesome films. This trailer depicts scenes that may offend sensitive viewers. If you are easily offended, cover your right eye now. However, if you enjoy a good broad-minded laugh, cover your left eye now. I thought you were a trustworthy boy, but going out behind my back with that oily shop girl kissing and cuddling in public Mom, she's experienced. Lionel loves his new girlfriend. Oh, oh. Almost as much as he loves his mother. Mom! But Lionel's mother is different. Your mother ain't my dog! Not all of it. She's not very well. Your mother's dead, Lionel. Now. Everyone else is not very well either. And they're getting sicker by the minute. I kick ass for the Lord! <laughs> Soon, there won't be anyone left. It's quite a collection of stiffs you got down there. Who isn't? <laughs> Brain dead. It's all right. You can look now. Brain dead. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. Tonight, another horrifying story from Scholastic Books. This one from that grim tone, the ghostly hand 
and other haunting stories. Edited by Nora Kramer. Our selection, Horror at Dusk. It is frightening enough when a person encounters a malignant ghost, but when the ghost is the spirit of something even worse. A number of years ago, Miss St. Dennis visited a country farm in England where she planned to do some sketching and painting. Her favorite place to work was the village railway station. It was not far from the farm and the trains ran very infrequently. And from the platform, she had an excellent view of the entire countryside. One afternoon, she became so absorbed in her work that she lost track of time until she suddenly became aware that the darkness was falling. Folding up her camp stool, canvases, and paints, she prepared to leave when she noticed a figure, strange-looking man sitting on a small truck at the far end of the platform. He was in the shadows, and it was impossible to see him distinctly. Even so, she knew he was not the station master. And what was really disturbing was that he appeared to be staring at her intently. The country she had to travel through on her way back to the farm was bleak and lonely. On one side of the path was a gray and gloomy abandoned slate quarry, half filled with water. Everywhere else were gnarled and unhealthy looking trees, loose rocks, bare precipices, and sickly and dying vegetation. The only visible signs of civilization were the lonely railroad tracks and the small empty station. Overcoming the creeping sensation at the back of her neck, Miss St. Dennis turned around and called out to the stranger, asking him, What time is it? He failed to answer. Instead, he remained where he was, motionless, staring, and more difficult to see in the gathering dusk. His refusal to answer upset her. She decided to head as quickly as possible for the farm. She was very apprehensive, but she walked briskly, making every possible effort to appear undisturbed by the strange presence. Although Miss Dennis could hear nothing but the sound of her own footsteps, she somehow had the feeling that she was being followed. Looking over her shoulder, she saw to her dismay that she was indeed being followed by the stranger from the station. She quickened her pace with mounting alarm, and on either side were the jagged cliffs. If anyone were to attack her, she could scream herself hoarse and never be heard. In desperation, she decided again to take the offensive. Whirling about, she shouted defiantly, who are you? What do you want? She ended her question with a sharp gasp, because in the last fading glimmer of the sunset, 
she had caught a clear view of the mysterious stranger. The figure had come closer, and she realized that it was not a human. Although it walked erect like a man, it was taller. It was covered from head to foot with shaggy gray fur, and its head was that of a wolf. The muzzle was open, and the long tongue lolled to one side, revealing two rows of sharp, gleaming fangs. The eyes blazed with a diabolical fire. On the creature came, and when it was quite near her, it crouched as if to spring. Instinctively, she reached for the only thing she could defend herself with, a pocket flashlight. She snapped on the beam and flashed it in the creature's face. The creature halted in its tracks. It cringed, covering its eyes with its terrible paw-like hands, and then vanished. Somehow, Miss St. Dennis managed to find her way back to the farm. And when she had recovered somewhat, with a reviving cup of tea, she related her terrifying experience to her hosts. At first, they were reluctant to say anything. Finally, however, it came out. Not long before, a strange skeleton had been found in the very quarry she had walked past a short while ago. The skeleton had appeared to be part human and part animal. And then it was she realized with horror she had seen the ghost of a werewolf. Leap year 
jump over the moon Fourth of July and put it in May Took this phone back in the day Once, upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. How distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger. Hesitating then no longer, sir, said I, or madam, truly, your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is, I was napping. And so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here, I opened wide the door. Darkness there. Nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering. Long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before, but the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again, I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something of my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is in this mystery explore. But my heart is still a moment. This mystery explore, tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here, I flung the shutter when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance, matey, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, nothing more. Then, 
This ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stirred decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Much I marvel this ungainly foul to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast, upon the sculpted bust, upon his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the pallid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did up poor. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow, he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then, the bird said, by the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken. Doubtless said I, what it utters is its only stock in store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling straight, I wield a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing. But no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press on nevermore. Then we thought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee. By these angels he hath sent thee respite. Respite and nepenthe from the memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still a bird or devil. Whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me, truly I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, think of evil, prophet, still a bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore. Tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden 
when the angels name Lenore quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back into the tempest, and the night's plutonian shore, leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul had spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door, take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door, quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallet bust the palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted. They are my only weakness. Frankenstein is, and who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long talk, and then I have an important call to make. There's a yodel in the air yet There ain't no 
nobody there. It must be a ghost. A yodeling ghost. It's a sentimental call yet. There's no one there at all. It must be a ghost. The yodeling ghost. It all began when a Swiss was shown the door by a miss. He told her he would haunt her. He disappeared in the snows, and every villager knows. He yodels and yodels and yodels and yodels to taunt her. La doodle 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 Hear it echo in the night, though. There ain't a soul in sight. It's only that most harmonious ghost. There's a yodel in the air, yet there ain't nobody there. It must be a ghost, a yodel and ghost. La doodle doodle It's a sentimental call, yet there's no one there at all. It must be the ghost, the yodel and ghost. It all began when a Swiss was shown the door by a miss. He told her he would haunt her. He disappeared in the snows, and every villager knows. He yodels and yodels and yodels and yodels to taunt her. There's a yodel in the air yet. There ain't nobody there. It must be a ghost. A yodel and ghost. A yodel and ghost. As the scientist who discovered that the human brain can survive bodily destruction, can continue to function as a dynamo of living thought, generating a mental power greater than the science of man, Gene Evans, as his assistant, sharing the burden of a terrifying knowledge with ever-increasing fear and hatred. Stop it! Mr. Donovan intends to dominate the international financial scene. And a fatal accident will occur to all who happen to stand in his way. Steve Brody is the reporter who probed too deeply into the beyond and received the full impact of its deadliest forces. Yoakum's death was no accident. Donovan engineered it. And the same thing could happen to us. Donovan could kill us the same way he killed Yoakum. That's right. And it's too dangerous to wait any longer. 
Frank! Surprised? Thanks to Dr. Patrick Corey, Donovan's brain will live, thrive, and continue to grow far beyond the body of Dr. Corey. It is already able to exist in any body, anywhere it will. Knowing this, you now know too much. Nancy Davis, as the woman who was compelled to submit to the brain's satanic vibrations of evil.
Death has reared himself a throne in a strange city, lying alone far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. Fair shrines and palaces and towers, time-eaten towers that tremble not, Resemble nothing that is ours. Around by lifting winds forgot, Resignedly beneath the sky The melancholy waters lie. No rays from the holy heaven Come down on the long night time of that town, But light from out the lurid sea Streams up the turret silently, Gleams up the pinnacles far and free, Up domes, up spires, up kingly halls, up fanes, up Babylon-like walls, up shadowy long-forgotten bowers of sculptured ivy and stone flowers, up many and many a marvelous shrine whose wreathed friezes intertwine the vile, the violet and the vine. Resignedly beneath the sky, the melancholy waters lie. So blend the turrets and shadows there That all seem pendulous in air While from a proud tower in the town Death looks gigantically down Their open fanes and gaping graves Yawn level with the luminous waves But not the riches there that lie In each idol's diamond eye Not the gaily jeweled dead Tempt the waters from their bed, for no ripples curl, alas, along that wilderness of glass. No swellings tell that winds may be upon some far off happier sea. No heavings hint that winds have been on seas less hideously serene. But lo, a stir is in the air, the wave. There is a movement there, as if the towers had thrust aside in slightly sinking the dull tide, as if their tops had feebly given a void within the filmy heaven. The waves have now a redder glow. The hours are breathing faint and low, and when, amid no earthly moans, down, down that town shall settle hence, hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. They say I'm mad. <laughs> he's mad, he's mad. The man is mad. Monty, yes, fearless leader. Bring the ashes from the crematorium. <laughs> Pour the hot water over it. Aha! Instant people! <laughs> Boy, is he nuts. <laughs> they said it couldn't be done. 
<laughs> they tried to tell me it couldn't be done. They were right. It can't be done. <laughs> Avoid this man. <laughs> they got to drop the net over him. <laughs> See, I told you it wouldn't hurt there. Well, that wraps up another podcast, but not quite the month of October. So we wish you all a great rest of the month and especially a great Halloween. Frank, what's the last thing? October, appropriately, is the birth month for Bella Franek Dezo Blasco, better known as Bella Lugosi. Everyone knows him for his role in the play and the film version of Dracula, but he had many other roles in and out of the horror genre. My personal favorite is his performance as Igor in The Son of Frankenstein. Tonight, in his honor, we have what was called back in 1931 an intimate interview with Bela Lugosi. By the way, the interview ends with Bella feigning madness and supposedly scaring off the interviewer. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See, See you, you next month. Hello. Oh, hello, Ira. Oh, I'd just love to, but, but I have an assignment for an interview. And boy, guess who? Oh, no, no, you're all wrong. It's Bela. Lugosi. Yes, the mystery man. Yes, we finished the picture yesterday. Well, do you start another immediately? I think uh, the next week. You're Hungarian, aren't you, Mr. Lugosi? Yes, I am. What I mean, I'm Hungarian by birth. I'm an American now. Well, why did you leave Hungary? Political reasons. After the war, I participated in the revolution, and later, I found myself on the wrong side. Oh, that's very unfortunate. What are you studying now? I'm studying now American slang. I know how to say okay and cat's whiskers and baloney and and how. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's sit down. Okay. <laughs> Yes, and I can't change the water because all the fish die. <laughs> I feel it myself every morning. Oh, you do? Oh, it's been bomb today. But you did become a citizen, didn't you, Doc? Oh, some time ago. I, and I'm very glad and happy about it. I can stay here for good. Mm-hmm. It's very nice to live in a country where people know how to mind their own business. <laughs> There's something else. It's wonderful how how the American people display their sportsmanship. Uh, Mr. Lugosi, did you play uh, any mystery parts in Europe? No, I I didn't. By accident, I didn't. Well, what type of roles did you play? Well, different kind of roles: character, dramatic, romantic, all kinds. 
Well, have you ever been interested in anything outside of your profession? Oh, yes, very much. I like to, to model, to sculpture. In my spare time, I like to put my surplus energy... I married. <laughs> well, what was your first mystery play? Well, Dracula. Oh, did the role depress you? Very much. It haunted me. I often dreamed of the dead. In the morning when I woke up, I was tired and pressed. Did you see the blade? No, I didn't. I'm awfully sorry. But what kind of uh, makeup did you use? Well, I can show it to you on the picture, I promised you. Oh, I'd love to see it. Here it is. Oh, how frightfully weird. It isn't so much a makeup. It's rather expression. I'm afraid I'll dream about this myself tonight. <laughs> you flatter. Were you satisfied uh, with your work in the picture? No. Whenever an actor gets satisfied with his work, he's done, he's true. You see, in the National Theatre of Hungary in Budapest, all the great character parts are played by four or five different players. Each competes with the other. Each plays a part in accordance with their own conception. And the audience is just as much interested in the actor's conception of the role than it's interested in the play itself. Mm -hmm. Well, would you like to play in any more mystery parts in the future? Yes, why not? I can't see it. They're very interesting. But I would rather have... Uh, it combined with some romance. It has a much greater appeal to the audience and even the box office of the producers would gain more. Romance is very important. Well, speaking of romance, do you ever go to any Hollywood parties? No, life is too short for that. I wouldn't waste my time. There are so many interesting and wonderful things in the world that a man could achieve and experience. Besides, I, I don't even know how to play that, uh, what do you call it, uh, ukulele. Oh, but you have so many friends, Mr. Lugosi. Well, I guess I'm pretty much of a lone wolf. I don't say I don't like people at all, but to tell you the truth, I only like them if I have a chance to look deep into their heart and in their mind. If I find there something something worthwhile, some, some human kindness, some sympathy. Mr. Lugosi, are you interested in... Uh... Pardon me. I'm coming. Why, I didn't hear anyone calling. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I... I, I understand. I, 